The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. You know, 9-11 was really the first terrorist event I had seen in my lifetime. <clears throat> completely unexpected, completely devastating. And then we had kind of the Enron scandal. Yep. Then we had uh, the global financial crisis. Then we had the BP oil spill. Then we had the Fukushima nuclear disaster. You know, it, it goes. Then we had COVID. And so for 20 years, we've basically seen wave after wave of either broad scale or very focused uh, terrorist events. And so we all had to change our management styles, learn how to be uh, better risk managers and learn to adjust. So, so Patricia, I, I basically, the day after I took over, uh, I was in Seattle and saw, uh, was working out and saw the uh, second plane hit the World Trade Center. Yeah. And that began kind of one or two months of just crisis uh, management. We, we, we had big exposure to commercial aviation. We had big exposure to the insurance industry. And, and NBC ran commercial free for a week. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco-Becali. Welcome back to another edition of Crisis to Creation here on Mentory TV. I'm Patricia Falco-Becali, your host. And today we have a super special guest for you. He is the former CEO of one of the biggest companies, globally speaking, and has joined that company about one week before 9-11 in 2001 happened. Who am I talking about? Jeff Immelt, the former CEO of GE. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us here on Mentory TV. Patricia, it's really great to see you again. It's great to be with you. And you said already again, because we've known each other in our past lives. <laughs> We're just exactly. Fantastic. I've known you for a long time. So it's always, it's always <laughs> great to see your uh, friendly face. Yes, thank you so much. And uh, just to put everybody a little bit into context, how Jeff and I uh, have met and know each other. He was the boss of 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 my boss. So <laughs> because back then when I anchored for CNBC. You're on CNBC, yeah. Yes, exactly. And GE um, uh, owned NBC Universal. And this is how we met. And he kept an eye on me on his workout gear and watching CNBC. Whilst I was talking, he was working out. So that's Jeff. Exactly. Hi, no, 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 that's right. <laughs> well, Jeff, um, today I invited you here to talk about this fabulous book, I have to say. Uh, after you left GE um, in 2017, you had some time to just step back from 16 years of leading that company. Uh, I think over 36 years you were with that company. Hot seat, what I learned leading a great American company. I enjoyed your book thoroughly. Um, Jeff, I was just thinking, you know, looking at these 16 years and reading the book and me also being a little bit in the story because I was in the media when a lot of things happened, like, for example, 9-11, Enron, Lehman Brothers collapse, et cetera, et cetera. What actually fascinated you as a child to join GE in the first place? Why was that something you would aspire to after, you know, going to Dartmouth and Harvard? The world was your oyster. Yeah, you know, so I, I, I mean, I have a unique background, Patricia, in that my father worked at GE for almost 40 years. So I kind of, I not only grew up around the company, but I grew up around 
uh, a time when my father was involved with making things and, you know, kind of the industrial complex of the United States. Uh, when I was graduating from uh, uh, graduate school, you know, what I really wanted to do was be an operator. I, I had spent time in the summer between years of business school at BCG. So I got a chance to see what it, what consulting was about. But I really thought a path of operations was the best thing for me. I thought I would join GE for five years and then raise my head up and and see what was next and, and kind of figure out a next path. And, you know, those five years turned into 15 and 20 and 30 and 35. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, kind of just the way things uh, worked. I met great people. I had great jobs. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot and I just kind of kept with it. And then I would say, you know, my upbringing, I, I was a combination of a math nerd and a football player. Oh, my and God. It, Exotic. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, so I, I, I liked solving problems and I did that for my whole career. But I also liked working with other people, being on teams, being competitive. And I'd say in some ways, my upbringing in that way kind of played forward in terms of what I did in my business career. But those were my strengths. Uh, you know, kind of analytical mind and team sports. And I and I wanted to have a career that could utilize those strengths. You know, the one thing is to kind of enter into a company and then really start upon a career. The moment that you were kind of feeling, okay, I'm going to be nominated as the next CEO. What were the first thoughts really going through your mind, considering the legacy that um, Jack kind of built before you and what the company had become also under him and you would take over? Yeah, you know, so it was a grueling process, Patricia, in the late 90s. You know, I, I, I had been with the company my whole career. At that moment, I was running our medical business, and it was a very visible kind of three-way uh, horse race. So it was kind of, you know, just surviving that was kind of like job one. But I would say it was a, it was a combination of emotions. You know, I, I was never naive about the size of the task, both from a standpoint of, you know, the complexity of the company, the fame of my predecessor, uh, you know, I, I was never naive about any of that, you know, because I saw it unfold right during my career. And that was kind of balanced by the fact that I knew a lot of my colleagues. I, I knew we had talented executives that were dedicated to the company. And I, I kind of, I guess, felt like, um, you know, if, if I could harness the strength of the people I worked with, that we could accomplish any task, right? And I think what nobody in the 90s um, counted on was a third factor. And that was what was going to happen in the world around you. You know, basically, if you went to work, you know, in the early 80s, like I did, and then you went to 2000, the world was very tranquil. The, the world was very peaceful. Really, not much was going on at all. And so we, we projected, I think, to a certain extent, and overconfidence based on the fact that the world of the future was going to be similar to the world of the past. Yeah. And that proved not to be very true. Exactly. As, and uh, uh, as, yeah, that, I mean, that is uh, such an important, I think, um, point to really, to really stress because the roaring eighties, the roaring nineties, okay. We had the dot-com bubble, but that was kind of, 
you know, yeah. digested fairly well by the world economy. So yeah. Jeff Immelt comes in a week before 9-11. And then, you know, it was just 16 years. I mean, for me, 9-11, personally, it was just the, the beginning of an ever more uncertain, complex, chaotic, and really unpredictable environment where the crises that we faced were actually accelerating and gotten worse. How did, yeah. how did that feel? Yeah, it's really true. So if you if you step back and say, you know, 9-11 was really the first tail risk event I had seen in my lifetime. <clears throat> completely unexpected, completely devastating. And then we had kind of the Enron scandal. Yeah. Then we had uh, the global financial crisis. Then we had the BP oil spill. Then we had the Fukushima nuclear disaster. You know, it, it goes. Then we had covid and so for 20 years, we've basically seen wave after wave of either broad scale or very focused uh, terrorist events. And so we all had to change our management styles, learn how to be uh, better risk managers and learn to adjust. So, so Patricia, I, I basically, the day after I took over, uh, I was in Seattle and saw, uh, was working out and saw the uh, second plane hit the World Trade Center. Yeah. And that began kind of one or two months of just crisis uh, management. We, we, we had big exposure to commercial aviation. We had big exposure to the insurance industry. And, and NBC ran commercial free for a week. So the combination of those things were kind of, and we had two people die, right? So you had personal devastation, concern, uh, industry devastation, and, um, you know, uh, I was kind of thrust into making decisions very quickly in, in areas that I didn't know that much about. And I think one of, the, one of the lessons you learn is how important it is to have people you trust around you because, you know, in this case, I had uh, Dennis Dammerman and Keith Sharon, you, you know, some really big finance leaders who would basically, you know, when, when I would say, like, for instance, we were talking about giving a loan to an airline that was about ready to go bankrupt. I, I really didn't understand how the loan would work. But after an hour or two, I just turned to Dennis and said, okay, what do you want to do? What do you think we should do? Mm -hmm. And you had to kind of trust people to help you uh, to help you make it through. I also learned that it, during a crisis, leaders really have to absorb fear. That that if you if you told everybody how you felt every second of the day, three hundred thousand people would be terrified, and that's that's the uh, not the desired effect. You want to make sure you're terrified, but basically you show a calm demeanor externally. So people can keep doing their work. Yeah, Jeff. And, and uh, it's actually interesting that you should mention that quote because that one is one of the few I highlighted. And I would love to quote uh, this part of your book, Absorbing Fear. The best leaders absorb fear. I'm not talking about soothing people by blowing smoke or giving false assurances you're writing. I'm talking about giving people the truth, but also giving them a way forward. In the wake of 9-11, GE's people needed to hear and to believe that we had a plan and that we working together, they could help us execute it. And then you go on basically that you were feeling scared less, okay, but you couldn't lead on. And I think, yeah. um, you know, they always say in vino veritas, and I think in crisis veritas. What were your, what, you know, your impulses that came through all of a sudden in the situation that you even thought, hey, 
that's that's an impulse that's kind of almost new and i like it yeah i think one of them is that in a crisis you know sometimes the biggest opportunities show themselves so i i always think about having two truths like that really the worst is yet to come and you need to be prepared for really terrible things but then in the back of your mind saying look if i get a window of opportunity i'm going to do these three things because if we can come out of 9/11 with a better aviation business we can gain market share we can we can be better with our customers we can push our advantage globally and so i i think you know keeping these two truths during a crisis i i see it even today in covid is extremely uh, extremely important the other one i i think patricia is to keep a keep a uh, something handy to write down which one of your leaders steps up and which one of your leaders steps back right and in a crisis you see both camps you see people that are running for the exits they're blaming people they're they're throwing people under the bus and you have people that stand up and say hey i i'm here to help i'd like to do more let me help and and you sometimes you can only see that when chips are down Absolutely. So, Somebody's really accountable. Yeah, yeah, they are accountable and stepping up, as you were saying. And when the going gets tough, the tough get going. But right. um, I still, I wonder, you know, looking through what then unfolded, because GE had developed and diversified a lot. And there's always a question, also in an investor's mind, is a diversified company really a risk mitigation kind of company and stock to buy, or is it uh, is it something that m might just be putting the company at risk? Because as I said, in crisis veritas, as we then hit the financial crisis and the subprime debt crisis after Lehman Brothers, GE having grown into GE Capital and into really a lending company nearly killed it, that diversification. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I write about this in the book in that, you, you know, the, the company was really a sprawling conglomerate. There's no other way to say it. And we, and we had done well. Uh, our investors rewarded us for this, um, but we were in way too many businesses. We were in businesses we didn't really run well or understand. And I think we we all knew in the early 2000s we had to begin uh, reinvesting in the industrial businesses and and refocusing, I would say, GE Capital. And we made a decision, Patricia, in the early 2000s that we would build, uh, rebuild the industrial business, but we would allow G Capital to continue to grow mm. and, and take the cash from G Capital and use it to invest in the industrial company. And that's what we were doing. And that worked up until uh, when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. So when I look backwards, you know, I, I kind of say, um, that was probably something I would have done differently, that you know, we could have stepped back mm -hmm. We could have just lowered the earnings and really chain, remixed the company coming out of 9-11. We decided not to do that. And by the time uh, September of 2008 rolled around, uh, that didn't look very smart, right? So we, we were, uh, when, when we went into the financial crisis, the, the biggest issue we had was we were just too big. Yeah. And, and um, you know, when the capital markets go crazy and you're the biggest finance company on the planet, 
that is a really tough combination. Absolutely. And you write about it in your book as well, that you had the feeling at times that the Fed was really after GE, trying to split it up and uh, even have, you know, the financial part regulated by the Fed after Dr. Uh, Frank. So there is a, there's a lot of things you were fighting on many, many fronts, never mind on the corporate level, but even on a more governmental level. Yeah, look, I mean, and, you know, when you think about what happened, you know, we... I, I never really viewed us as a victim, Patricia. In other words, we were big and we were complicated and we and, and more regulation was going to come and none of us could complain about that. But it really changed the nature of the company. It, it really made us a bank. We had all of the, let's say, encumbrances of being a bank with none of the advantages, right? Yeah. We, we couldn't take deposits. We couldn't go to the Fed window. Uh, our cost of funds went up. And so, you know, that's that's when we began to see coming out of the financial crisis that we needed to make some other strategic moves to simplify the company uh, over time. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was I was there and I was, you know, anchoring for CNBC. And of course, GE was also on our agenda. And we followed and we reported we had you on the shows as well. And all through these years, I was always looking at, um, especially you as the leader, thinking, gosh, he's fighting so many problems that were actually, it is being blamed, and the company being blamed for so many problems that have not really been created by you personally, but that were strategic decisions that have been made by your predecessor that's been hailed as the manager of the century you know, by Fortune magazine. And then the crisis comes, he goes, and who is mopping up, basically, um, you know, all these things that didn't work out in a certain crisis scenario was you. Do you think sometimes, A, that wasn't portrayed right, especially by, I want to say now, including me, the media? Do you think the story wasn't really told the right way? You know, so um, I thought... Uh, Jack was a great, he was really a great guy to work with, worked for a great CEO. Uh, you know, Patricia, but the times were so different, so different. And and so, you know, kind of like what I was fighting a little bit in the media was was the fact that perception didn't that's equal reality. That's, that's the point. And, you know, I, I didn't want to look backwards because nobody really, you know, fundamentally most people don't care about the past. They really want to know what's next. So I didn't really want to fight battles from eight or 10 or 15 years ago. But, you know, you're, you're also in the public eye, you know, fighting a difference between perception and reality. And the fact is, is that if you kind of draw a line of 2000 forward or, or 2000 backward, you know, the conglomerates of this generation are all tech companies, Right. It's Amazon, it's Apple, it's, it's, it's Google. And, and so the whole notion of what it meant to be a fast growth company went from being kind of management processes yep. to being technology. And, 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 I, it, and I want to talk to, about, to you about yeah. that. Yeah, but just to circle back on that one is, is you were saying perception and reality. And my take on this is, is basically, you know, you were trying to do to write and communicate your own story because you did make changes. You did stay the course. You did try to lead strong and you did whatever was necessary in that crisis. But still, constantly, I would have been really, I would have been on edge, not to use other words, constantly being compared 
Honestly, yeah, look, it was a, um, it was, you know, it was nonstop. Nonstop, for, exactly. That's what I'm saying. And, and people, and out people of would tell, you know, people would tell, you know, there's a famous adage that Jack used to use, Patricia called, you know, being number one or number two or getting out of the business, right? But even he stopped saying it yeah. by 1990. Okay. So here I was, let's say in 2012, and some reporter would ask me, well, what do you think about being number one or number two, which was something that wasn't used in GE for 20 years or 25 years. And you'd say, really, dude, that's not the company today, right? That's not. Move on, move on. <laughs> and this is what I'm saying, this legacy is just incredible. So I think that's, I think that's a, you know, again, there, and again, I, I would never blame an analyst reporter, things like that. But I think sometimes people just get lazy mm. and fall back into, you know, kind of what's, What's the myth versus, you know, kind of what really... What you, you know, did. What really Nobody wanted right? to see or hear. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you were just talking about technology and you were always, and I, I heard your, uh, in your speeches, you were always looking at technology and also, you know, the development of the company. And guess who I'm going to have also on the show? David Kidder, does that ring oh, a great. bell? Great. All right. So he's going to join me as well. And he starts his book with you in Boca Raton. Yeah and your speech talking about innovation. And that is very interesting because at the time that he was confronting you, it seems he didn't think that GE was that great in, let's say, auto-generated uh, innovation. Yeah, look, I think I, I was always trying to bring in people from the outside because, you know, not just in terms of just fundamental technology, but also business model, you know, seeing how the world was going to change. And, you know, there were certain industries that we were always going to be good at, a aviation and things like that. But you could see, for instance, in the in the energy and power sector that it was going to go from being big baseload factories to being more distributed power where we needed to be more innovative and nimbler and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, again, in a company of 300,000 people, um, you need to be as energetic as you humanly can be to drive moments of change um, as, as they need to take place. And I was constantly bringing people in from the outside who challenged us to get better and faster and bigger and think bigger. And, uh, and David was one of those people. Yeah, no, David, David is awesome. And in a way, you know, the bigger a company becomes, it seems to me, the more it needs to be process orientated. The need, the, the need to be to be efficient is important. And the more the numbers seem to count, then really the long-term growth, which means often investing into research, development, uh, future technologies that may or may not work out. Where's the kind of, um, let's say, not balance, but where does a company become too big? It needs to be just so structured to just keep it together that innovation all of a sudden falls into second place, also due to shareholder pressure or even shareholder activism. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because to your point, process is always going to be important. Financial discipline, particularly as you get big, is always important. But I think if we, if we look at what's happened today, The power of ideas is really what's moving the economy. Really, when you think about, again, Elon Musk or Amazon or, or other companies, the power of ideas is what's... So you, you can't be so process-oriented that that you lose the power of ideas. And, and going backwards, Patricia, to when I took over, you know, we, we had spent four or five years on Six Sigma. I had nothing against Six Sigma, but I knew it wasn't going to give us the next big idea. I just knew that, right? <clears throat> so you... 
you have to try to unwind some of the big process initiatives to give room for new ideas uh, to breathe. But you have um, to communi communicate this because often uh, that are quoted are being, you know, they're being punished for that. Yeah, and I, I would say just to circle back to, because I, I think you, this question is maybe one of the most essential questions that business leaders have to ask today. You know, I, I ran GE in eight big businesses to be big in the industries they're in and be efficient. If I had it to do over again, I might have broken those eight businesses into 100 businesses mm -hmm. to get more innovation, to get more accountability of the leaders, to be their own innovator. And I think, I think companies that are big have to continue to break themselves down. Uh, this is something that, you, you know, again, I, I've known uh, Bezos and Amazon since its inception. And I think it's something he's done exceptionally well which is continue to make the company look small, right? Even as they, even as they become huge uh, inside the company, they're still reasonably nimble for a big company. How do they make that? How do they make that happen, you say? I think it's intentional. Look, I think it's two things. I, I think it's organization. So I don't think they allow mega organizations. I think they break things down into more accountability. And, and really, I think, you know, Jeff has a sharp culture, right? It's not for everybody. Um, but, but it's, it's, you know, grow, uh, that's your expectation. Your expectation is to innovate. Your expectation is to grow. Um, and you know, look, the fact is, is by the time I, I was a product person, I was always a technology person, but I could have become really CEO of GE without ever having launched a new product. Really, yeah, you know? yeah. And so that, I tell that to people that I work with today in venture capital, they say, that can't be true. And I say, well, that's just the way it was in those, you know, the, the economies were growing, professional management was the, was the thrust, and, and it was just a different day. And so, you know, the key thing is to see these changes and be willing to push forward. In that yes, context. absolutely. See the changes or make the changes. And I think exactly. this is exactly where when you have a company that is totally focused on one sector and stays with that sector, not only is the sector, but creates it going forward. So they create their own reality. And yeah. I sometimes wonder with these big conglomerates, you know, they're everywhere trying to, to play even, but can never, never really push, just kind of try to keep the market share or the numbers going. Yeah, I think it's, you know, again, what, what we try to do is make the, make the conglomerate narrower so that we could be deep in each one of the businesses. You know, I, I, I take NBC, a business both you and I know well. Um, I remember when uh, Disney acquired Marvel, the comic book franchise. And, you know, that just wasn't on our game board, right? But it was a brilliant move. Brilliant. Uh, you know, being able to go, uh, we stood up Hulu as a joint venture, but, you know, we pulled back too soon because we were afraid to lose our cable revenue. So, you know, when I looked at myself in the mirror and said, look, the media business is a good business and it's fun, but we're not, you know, we're not prepared to fight every fight, to try every new idea. And if you're not prepared to fight every fight and try every new idea, you should exit the business. And, yeah. and I think that's where conglomerates have to go through and be really honest with themselves as to you know, what they're willing and able to do.
Yeah, I, I think with CNBC from my side, how we experienced it, uh, only the U.S. made money. And all of us, we were just there just because you fed us, basically. And I think, uh, you know, Mick Buckley, who was a CEO when I was there in London as well, I think he brought the business, the European business to break even, but that was as good as it got yeah. back then. And since then, there were different developments. But we often had great ideas. And the question was always, and do you have a sponsor? For that, yeah. You know? yeah, and it was very frustrating because you had a pool of talent, great ideas, putting it together. You know, from a content point of view, and at the end of the day, I believe in content. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the structure; we need to fill it with content that is valuable. Mm -hmm. And if you couldn't put that through because of the numbers, because of the budget, then of course it's very frustrating. But mm -hmm. I, I totally get it. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, you know globalization because that is something that GE definitely did. It was really putting a flag everywhere in the whole world and saying, okay, we are here and that exchange and China must come into the, the, the equation. And whenever I hear a you know, a, um, a conversation about globalization. There's always the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the ugly seems to be always the Chinese. And I tend to disagree with it. What is your take on globalization? Where, you know, the waves it went through and where will we go from here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, great. it's a great question. Very timely as well, politically for sure. Um, uh, look, if you want to grow, no matter where you are, you need to look outside your home market you know, Americans get fat and lazy because we live in a great market, but that's no excuse for not uh, trying to globalize. So first and foremost, if you're a business leader, this has to be on your agenda as you think about the future. Uh, you know, secondly, the nature of globalization changed dramatically in my career from what I would call kind of a U.S.-led integrated trade concept where people would trade around the world and even the European Union, you know, believe that the being able to work with each other was really a great asset. And that changed, I, I would say it was changing slowly over time. But the financial crisis really put a stake in the ground of countries saying we're in it for ourselves. And basically, we can't afford anymore to let other people win when we lose and things like that. So the whole world started to become more nationalistic uh, over that time period. And I think what we try to do is pivot to be more local. So we basically delegated to, we empowered local teams. We allowed them to build up good franchises in Brazil or in Saudi Arabia or in Germany or in China or in India. And we won using very much a local, kind of an integrated local framework was very much uh, the way we won. So the world has gone from being integrated globalization to being really uh, no one in charge. Every country is doing its own thing. And if you learn how to live in that world, you can win big, number one. Number two, uh, chi uh, China matters a lot, right? So we decided early on we were going to make China kind of another home market. So we localized, we built partnerships, we invest in the local teams. Uh, we tried to win in the markets that we were allowed to play and win in. And so, you know, kind of in the 30 or plus years that I've been going to China, what you see, what you've seen is just consistent economic uh, growth. And it's not, look, it's not without challenges, right? Uh, cyber is a challenge. IP theft is a challenge. Uh, getting access to markets, all those things are challenges. But I always tell people our market share in healthcare was higher in China than it was in Germany. Mm. 
it was higher in China in aviation than it was in Europe, right? We made more money in China than we did in the U.S. So if you don't complain, if you just figure out ways to get things done, China can be a great market and it's going to continue to be a great market. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, let's say, military considerations or cyber considerations Humanitarian considerations, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, China's going to have the biggest automotive market, the biggest aviation market, the biggest healthcare market. I could go down the list. And if you're not participating, and by the way, they're going to be investing in Africa, Middle East, Latin America. If you're not willing to play in China, you're going to miss the next generation. You know, the last thing I would tell Patricia is a human, it's kind of a human story. And that's about... You know, over the course of my career, I got to know and become friends with and work with hundreds of really talented European business leaders. And the European business leaders were the best globalists by far because they had good education. Um, they, they, they were smart and well-trained, but they basically grew up in an environment where their society didn't like business people, Right. So they became very comfortable moving around the world in places where they could be more appreciated and, and, and have big impacts. And so I think one of the strengths GE had is we had a really strong cadre of business people that were about you know, my generation who we then moved around the world to do work, to do jobs. And so at various times, our leader in Japan was European. Our leader in Latin America was a European. Our leader in Middle East was European. And that was, uh, that was great. I always tell the story, Patricia, that I was in Mozambique and seeing two oil companies. One was an American company called Anadarko. And I went in to see them. I said, hey, guys, how you doing? And they said, we're doing horribly. This is a hellhole. Our families are back in Texas. We're miserable. And I drove down the road to see any, the Italian oil company. I said, how are you guys doing? They said, we're doing great. This is paradise. And our families are back in Italy. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you make of that? <laughs> That's the difference between an American as a globalist and a European as a globalist. Oh, my God. That's actually a really funny story. No, but I, yeah. I, I wonder about why you would say that the, that the European um, leaders are more appreciated out of Europe. And I think you are spot on. If I put one-on-one -on -one together, there's, a, there's not this kind of, hey, good for you mentality. You know, you're successful. Go for it. I'm right behind yeah. you. There's a lot of envy. There's a lot of outs. You know, it's all about connections and nepotism and who yeah. knows how you got your job. And I think this, uh, you know, to strive, you need a that people are open to new ideas and then sponsor these ideas and actually are quite happy for you to be successful rather than to kind of negate, say, won't be successful. I won't finance you. So it's very conservative here. I, I think that's I think that's well said. And, you know, kind of the last 20 or 25 years, people have said, why go to Europe? It's slow growth. It's hard. Things like that. But I say you're missing the bigger point is in Europe, you're going to find hundreds of talented leaders who are going to be good in their home market, but they're also great every place, right? They, they, they travel well. So I think a big aspect of globalization is human resources, human talent, uh, knowing how to attract and retain and not just make people good in their own country, but making people that are business leaders that can move uh, cross countries. And I think we did that well, Patricia, yeah. over, over, over the last decades. Yeah, and I totally appreciate your comments about China. And I think China has moved away from the copycat. 
You know, yeah, they are they are very, very innovative. And again, if you are not close to them, you will be just overtaken. And I remember also hosting um, also in Davos panels. And after the panels, the Q&A sessions, you would always have a representative from China asking a question. How can we become better than you, bigger than you, richer than you? And they were so blunt about it. That's really true. Here's the bad news. Here's the bad news. They may not have to steal stuff anymore. You know, in other words, their innovation is quite good. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Well, um, you know, we have a little bit more time together. And I wonder, you know, when when people, when your book came out, people were wondering, why did Jeff uh, write this book? Did he write it to just tell his story or truly as a leadership coach? What would you say? Yeah, you know, Patricia, so look, my career didn't end the way I wanted it to. It was um, it was a sad way. It was a sad way to end uh, for something I loved, truly loved and people I loved. Uh, you know, there's no doubt that some of the problems were of my own making. So I, I, I never I never dodged accountability or things like that. But I, I really wrote the book and I, and I took time to think. So my wife and I moved to California. You know, I just needed time to think and heal and think about things. Um, and I really wrote the book for two reasons. You know, one is, is that uh, truth, truth equals facts plus context. And I felt like all context around GE had gone missing. And that, and that um, it wasn't that we were perfect, but we did a lot of good things. And there were a lot of really talented people. It was a company that made an impact on the world and, and, and actually financially had a lot of success. But the stock price didn't work. My transition didn't work. And, and so one thing I wanted to do was tell a whole story, right? Tell a complete story and let readers make their own uh, judgment. And then the second thing is I, I tried to kind of like um, not lecture the reader, but tell stories to show them, you know, what it felt like to be in crisis, why we made the decisions we made, how we felt when we made them. One of the best things I did is I hired a co-author whose name was Amy Wallace, and she was a very talented kind of journalist, business journalist. And she was tough on me and asked tough questions, and she asked tough questions of everybody. And that was a, uh, a real thing. So my hope is that the book does two things. It, it, it tells a more complete story about a complicated era and a really good company, and that leaders who are going through tough patches uh, interesting times, challenging times, they can get something out of the book and learn and, and, and help them through, you know, difficult times. Do you feel that you've actually been judged more as just a corporate leader than that human being that you actually are, the person that actually had to, had to steer the course through these crises? You know, it depends on the group. You know, Tristan, there's always, you know, we live in a world without nuance, right? And, and there's always going to be people that judge me harshly, and I accept that. I'm, I'm harsh to myself. Um, but I also teach, this is the fourth year I've taught at uh, Stanford Business School, and I know what, what students want to learn, right? They, don't, they know the world's not perfect. Young people today have lived through the financial crisis and COVID. They know leaders aren't perfect, right? <laughs> they, they, they're part of the figure-it-out generation. And people that want to figure things out, I think they're more sympathetic to me than, than, than others. But they right? go deeper, perhaps. They go deeper. They, they, they go well. deeper. They want to hear the stories. Yeah. 
And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to have to be satisfied with a complicated retrospective. But what at the same time, look, I, I worked with hundreds of really talented people. And I've had a chance now to see the world outside of GE. And I would put the leaders I worked with inside GE up against any I've ever met. Mm. And I want them to be proud of the work they did. I want them to feel good about the work they did and the work we did together. Yeah. No, because the reason why I'm asking is because a lot of people just judge any person uh, by, you know, the market cap of the company yeah. and the way it's going that they're leading. Okay. He must be like that. And it's, it's, it's two worlds. And, uh, you know, you are a human being, you have Andy, your wife, you know, your family living all mm. through it. And, you know, the man coming home, you know, the corporate guy being outside and the man coming home is two different things. So I, I wonder what would you say? Um, and I kind of got a bit of an idea there through the book is really the difference between a good leader and a great leader. Mm, I think um, I, I think the difference between a good leader and a great leader probably can be found in two or three things. I, I think one is really the ability to see what's next and move towards it with conviction. And I think that's more important today than ever before. And again, I, I, I view... You know, there are many days that the people we we revere today, we were critical of them. We were critical of Jeff Bezos and we were critical of Elon Musk. But they're, they're able to see what's next and move to it uh, with conviction. I, I put that up there. Their ability to be extremely uh, uh, willing to fire anybody they don't trust immediately. So, so the ability to just like say you can't make it another minute and you're gone. I think that's, you know, and then I think the last one is the ability to take a punch. You know, so many people give up, but so many people run, so many even big leaders, you know, I mean, look at, look in politics or business, you know, people just want to point fingers and all that stuff. That's just become such a disease. And so I think good leaders are like, what's next with conviction extremely tough-minded on people and, and uh, you know, the ability to persevere personally through, you know, through, uh, through crisis. You know, I, in, in the USA, Patricia, everything's political, right? Yeah. And everybody wants President Biden to do well. But, you know, like when he starts a speech by talking about all the things he hated about Trump, Nobody cares anymore. Really, no, nobody cares. Really, all we want to do, all we want to know is like, what's next? Like, how are we going to solve tomorrow's problems? And I think that's where uh, good leaders sometimes look backwards or point fingers. Great leaders always point forwards. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm a student of Kabbalah and there is a saying, you know, when you point fingers actually in the movement, there's one finger pointing to that person, but three fingers pointing towards you. <laughs> Do you like I that? that? I think that's true. I, I say, look, if you, if you come back to your home and there's smoke coming out of the windows <laughs> and, you, and you yell fire, everybody in the neighborhood helps you put it out, right? If you come home and you see smoke coming out of the window and you yell arson, Nobody touches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The house burns down. No, no, absolutely the same story. Yeah. Okay, last one. And I could go on for hours, but I know you are a busy man, perhaps more busy than before. Um, what would you tell 
today, in hindsight, with your experiences, Jeff, your 16-year-old self? Oh, gosh. Um, gosh, I would... Uh, I would, I would even more strongly follow your instincts and your dreams. You know, I, I, uh, you know, sometimes Patricia, like I, I'd say many, if not most of the instincts I had at GE have been right, have been proven to be right. But sometimes I didn't push them. I wish sometimes I'd push them even harder, right? And and even been more dogmatic about them. So I think I would tell my 16-year-old self, you know, really go really go for it every day. Just go for it. Mm-hmm. And and let the let the consequences end up where they end up, right? And yeah. then I probably in second place would be bring others with you. Always bring others with you. Yeah, that's excellent. I wonder. What kept you from not really pushing that conviction yet you might have felt in your guts? I think it's, you know, again, you go back to conglomerate. Um, there, are many, there, there are strengths of conglomerate in terms of developing talent and diversification and scale and strength. But um, what I see in startups, you know, Patricia, is the ability to focus on one thing all the time. Yes. And so what would tend to happen sometimes where I would, I, I just was like, I needed 32 hours in a day because when I was pushing digital, I still had to worry about China, right? Or I still had to worry about healthcare or I still had to worry about G capital. So I'm, I'm trying to run a big digital play. And yet, you know, five hours every day, I had to help fix G capital. Yeah. And, and you, and you just get versus when I work with a startup now, we're doing one thing with a dedicated team. And, and so I think, I think that the conversation around size and scope and the ability to be as good as you need to be in the year 2021 is a real debate that boards and business journalists and people like that need to have. So I, I would say when I, you know, sometimes I was early on ideas, but I'd say most of the, you know, the generation that I worked in, we had good ideas inside the company. A lot of them worked, some of them didn't, but the ones that didn't work probably could have had we just been more determined at, at times. I love it. I absolutely love it. And, and really the tendency goes more and more and it's proven by Apple and Amazon and also you know companies such as Twitter. You have to be vertical. We have such a complex yeah. world. You have to be niche. And in that niche, you have to be the leader, the thought leader, the you know, innovation leader. And you cannot do that if you are just, you know, a jack of all trades. You really end up a master of none. Completely agree. Yeah. Deep is, in this era, deep versus broad. Yeah. Jeff, such a pleasure to have you. Patricia, great to see you. I look forward to seeing you in person. (laughs) Absolutely. I'll be there in California, I tell you. That decision was great. I'd prefer to sit in California than in uh, in Switzerland, in Zurich, but I didn't really say that. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I'll see you someday soon. (laughs) <laughs> thank you so much. And thank, thank you, you my dear Mentory TV community, for having joined us yet again for another edition here uh, for Crisis to Creation, this time with former CEO of General Electric, Jeff Immelt. I hope to see you soon on the next episode. Bye.
Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of A Guided Life Podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.